If you have little ones up through grade four, you'd like for them to be in an age-appropriate service, they can be there. You can keep them with your, you here. Either way, for the rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 16. That's a good sound, isn't it? Children who run to Sunday school with a smile on their face tells me that they have uh, teachers that are a blessing to them. So we're grateful for that. Today is Move Up Sunday, so there's some new faces in some new classrooms uh, this morning, and uh, so we're, we're excited about that. First Corinthians 15, or 16, and we're going to make the most of our time in the Word today. So we're going to go right to our text. I'd like to read all the way through verse 4, starting in verse 1, so you can find uh, in your copy of God's Word. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. Uh, you can find that in the chair around you. Or read in your copy of God's Word, and I'll give you some verse cues. We'll stay together. People ask me often, what, what Bible version should I buy? And my, my comment is always the same, the one you're going to read every single day and commit to memory. And so uh, do that, be a part of that, and allow the Lord to uh, mold you, to sanctify you through His Word, to let it drill in you richly, so that your first responses and your first actions become ones that are more conformed to the image of His Son. As we put to death the deeds of the flesh, as uh, Jim read about this morning, if we walk in this, if we, if we are saved by the Spirit, we should walk also in the Spirit, and so that's a, an understanding of our position, and then also of our practice, and so that can be yours as you're in the Word of God. Let's read together verse 1, all the way through verse 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. Verse 2, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I came, when I come. Verse 3, now when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I'll send them with the letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Verse 4, and if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Let's stop right there. And that is really our section today under our consideration. We saw as we really just got our feet wet in the introduction last week in this section of God's word, we saw that Paul starts with now concerning the collection for the saints. Now, this is the fifth time Paul introduces a section of his letter with the words, now concerning. First, he did it, and you remember if you've been with us in our study in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, he uses the full statement. He says this, he says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, and then he goes on and says, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. So he has uh, some instruction to give them about singleness, and we looked at all of that uh, as we went through that section. And then he moves on, 1 Corinthians 7, 25. And he doesn't include that first part again because it just at this point must be obvious to his first readers that he's answering questions, touching on a question that was given to him either, either orally or given to him by letter. And he says in verse 25, he says, now concerning virgins, and that is the scripture's version of those who are never married because those who haven't married uh, are not sexually active. So he says, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who, has, who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. And so he starts the same way, he doesn't use a whole statement, but they know that's a question about purity, it's a question about those who are single and what they should do. Then 1 Corinthians 8, 1, he says it again, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. And so they had some questions about what's going on in the temple, and now they're saved, and people are buying meat in the temple, bringing it to the church. Is that a problem? So he goes through all of that stuff, and we went through all of that, and he says, I know that we all have knowledge, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. He's like, I know you know some stuff, make sure that you modify that by love, as uh, Jim read this morning. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 1, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts. So again, he doesn't use the whole, the whole statement, but people know it's an answer to a question. He's addressing something, and he says, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware of spiritual gifts. And then he goes on and talks about how you can determine whether something is being done in the church is actually spirit-controlled 
or if it's flesh controlled, and he gives some, some qualifications for that. And so we saw all that. So uh, he, then he gets to 1 Corinthians 16.1, and since the Corinthians are seeking clarification about the collection, because they've heard about it, and as we'll see in a minute, Titus has already uh, arrived there earlier and began the collection, and so we see that uh, he's, he realizes this is not the first time they've heard about it, but they have a question. Obviously, it came to him by way of mouth or by uh, a written letter, and so he says, now concerning uh, the collection for the saints. So according to uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 6, uh, they've been encouraged by Titus to do this collection. Perhaps they were even the first uh, to start in this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. If we think about the time frame and when uh, Paul might have sent Titus there to, to encourage them to start collecting. But somehow it had been sidetracked uh, here in Corinth, perhaps by the disunity and disharmony that uh, they had had. And we, we find that even in the modern day church when there's disunity, where there's disharmony, when there's complaining, when there's backbiting, that always affects how people give. It's, 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 a, it's a direct spiritual connection. And so it's probably what happened in Corinth. And so they had started, Titus had been there, they hadn't really completed it, and so he's following up and he's answering a question by letter. He just wants to make sure that they know. And so he says, now concerning collection of the saints, and we saw this collection was a ministry to those in Jerusalem who were in poverty. There was poverty in Jerusalem. We saw this last time. I gave you a little bit of a, a background. And so in light of that need, the Apostle Paul had arranged for a collection, and he had arranged to take an offering and take it back to the poor saints in Jerusalem. We saw that he was collecting it from Galatia, from Achaia, which is uh, where Corinth is located from Macedonia and so everywhere he went on his missionary journeys uh, the poor were in his mind in Jerusalem and so he's making sure that they understand uh, this is a priority for the church to minister and so he's collecting this money and we noted a few reasons why he was doing this obviously number one there was a need and uh, as we understand Paul telling Titus uh, you know teach your people to meet immediate need be ready to meet immediate need so he's just kind of following through with that there's a need there and if you can meet it be a part of that and so so in, in an act it was not only meant to relieve some distress uh, by virtue of the money of course but also to demonstrate the unity of the church uh, Paul shows this ability to be priorities he says you know there's a need we can meet it and so as we've seen the unity of the church is a priority for Paul We've gone through Corinth, we've seen it, this, this letter to the Corinthian church, we've seen Paul address it over and over again, and so uh, he knows this fellowship of believers, meeting the needs of other believers is very important, and, and, and really it's because if you, you, know, if you, if you, can't, you can't really have effective ministry if you don't have unity, if you don't have people on board, if they're not in the word, if they're not letting the Holy Spirit control them, you, you, can't, you don't have a strong base of people who know uh, that and practice that, you're, you're going to have a trouble expanding and, and, and being effective in ministry, so Paul makes sure that they understand, hey, there's a need, we can meet it. We also saw that it was a way to solve two factions in the church that ha had some difficulty between the Jewish believers and Gentile believers, you know, and so it's, uh, it's a way to, to smooth that out, that, that the Jewish believers can see these Gentile believers love them, they desire to minister to them, and so there's this, on this level uh, of, uh, of, of a perception of the Gentile churches perhaps be doing their own thing, there's this flowing back in of this blessing back onto the church in Jerusalem. And so... Uh, we saw that, so we saw, you know, first of all, it's, uh, there's a need, that they, want to, they should meet it. Number two, it's a way to soothe these two factions. And then number three, we also saw that the collection uh, was taken for uh, the Jewish Christians because of indebtedness. Now, we read that in Romans. We, un we understood that Paul looked at that as a, as a fact, uh, that from the Jewish church came uh, Christianity, all, all the prophets, everything that came uh, through came through the Jewish church. Salvation is of the Jews. Jesus even said that. And so Paul says there's an indebtedness there, uh, if you will, a repayment back. They were glad to do it, but a, a, a certainly an indebtedness between the two. And then fourthly, we saw the money really was proof of the transforming power of the gospel to the Gentiles. And we're going to talk about that more in a couple of weeks. But what you do with what you 
love the most or could love the most really demonstrates really where your heart is. I gave you that example of, uh, um, of uh, Zacchaeus, of course, and, and, and you, you were able to grasp that right away. You know, what was the transforming power? That we understood transforming power in Zacchaeus' life, which was here was a very greedy man who had stolen from everybody he'd ever met for years and had amassed a huge fortune, and then he is going to meet Jesus, and in, in Jesus' presentation of himself in the gospel, he understands what that means and comes to a life change. And how do we know? Because he committed to, the thing that he committed his life to, to hoarding as much as he could, he committed to giving away several times more than he'd ever taken. And so you saw that change, and this is a way, Paul says, it's a transforming power of the gospel. It indicates the Gentiles are truly born again by the way that they're doing with uh, what they're doing with what they love. And then verse 1 ends with this command. It says, as I directed the churches of Galatia, uh, so do you also. So the arrangements then that Paul laid down for the Corinthians collecting was to be the same as he'd given to any of the other churches. He's like, you know, Titus came, he, he started this with you, I'm going to give you some instructions because you have some questions about this collection. But listen, what I'm going to tell you is exactly what I told everyone else. Um, I told the churches in Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, which is now modern Turkey, that all those churches heard the same thing. This is what you're going to hear. And of course, then Berean gets the opportunity, and I, I mean the modern Berean, uh, gets the opportunity to hear the same thing again. It passes right down to us. And so that's how the word works. It gets circulated around initially, whatever it meant to the first believers and the first recipients as they understood the letter from Paul. That's what it still means now. So we don't try to change it around and make it different or whatever. The key to Bible understanding is what did it mean to the first reader? That's still what it means now. And that's the, that's the emphasis we want to have. And so that's what we're going to do. So our passage is speaking, first of all, about meeting the needs of those within the church. And so I think in general, we understand that's what's going on. I mean, obviously you have two different locations going on here, but it is the church and it's meeting needs for those within the church. And that is the church in Jerusalem. But here's the thing, uh, and, and mark this, the byproduct of the Apostle Paul's request for generosity towards the church in Jerusalem, catch this, is the general pattern or the standard of New Testament giving. And I think as we go through this, you're going to see some of the things that we do on a regular basis or that you were familiar with in your home church as you grew up, whatever, you realize that there's some historical uh, background for that. There's a reason why we do what we do, and we do it kind of like we do it. And obviously, it's not exactly the same, but as, as I've explained to you before, fellowship dinner, the way we give, the way we do communion, those things, those are based on historical things, not that something we generated out of the air. And so we can just kind of see this through the church, and we can pick up these general guidelines, and then we apply them as we can, and as we understand, to the modern church. So those guidelines then that he's given, giving for meeting the needs then become general guidelines for us, and that, so that's what we're going to do as we work through these four verses. It'll take us a little bit, just because they're important, and there's some things that are implied or, or understood there, if you will, that we need to understand. So the well-being then, and we can understand this, of the Jerusalem church was a, a concern to God. From Acts. It, it was a concern to God later in, in chapter 16. It, it, it was a concern to God in 2 Corinthians, which we're going to study uh, because that's where we see the instruction to the Macedonians and how they did it. it so the well-being of those who have need, and particularly as we look at the Jerusalem church, they had need, but the well-being of, the, of people who have need, we can say, is important to the Lord. It's of a concern to God. And so sacrificial giving and sharing in general have always been a concern to God. And we're going to see this as we work our way through. But, of course, the Jerusalem church was a concern. We see in general those who have need are concerned. And, in, and sacrificial giving and sharing in general have always been a concern for God. And I believe that he uses those, catch this, beloved, who have need to teach us to express love by action in a very tangible way. 
And I think we can make that connection pretty easily. Obviously, when there's need, that's going to require us to do something. And obviously, if we understand biblical principles, which we'll see in a little bit, of sacrificial, faithful, generous giving, that's going to impinge on our lifestyle a little bit. But I think that the Lord uses those who have need to help us understand that, help us understand sacrificial giving, help us understand that it, you know, it's going to take some, some sacrifice to make sure that we make the needs and we meet the needs that are there. And just to illustrate that a little bit to, you, so you can see this, and there are tons of places we can go, but uh, this will be our base, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 through 4. But I want to see, I want you to see some other things as you understand the heart of God. And as you read through the Bible, you'll see this now. And this is one of the things why we encourage you to continually read through the Bible cover to cover. Because you under, you'll begin to understand the heart of God as it, as it concerns things like giving and, and all the other things that are important for us to understand. So in Deuteronomy 15, 7, when people are taking possession of the land and they're moving into houses that they didn't build and, they, and they're moving into fields that they didn't plant and groves and vineyards that they didn't plant. They're inheriting all these things from the Lord. It's a gift from him as they have conquered the land. He's given it to them. And so this is, God reminds them of the goodness that he's given to them. And he says this, and it's just to let you know the mind of God as he thinks about those who are poor and those who have need. He says this, if there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers, any of your towns in your land, which the Lord, your God is, what is it? Giving to you, okay, you you know, they didn't earn it. I mean, they obviously fought for it, but the Lord gave it to them, okay? And so that's the general principle. Everything that we have, and we'll look at this later on, everything we have comes as a gift from the Lord because he owns everything, doesn't he? Everything is his, and so whatever we have is from him, his hand, to us. Even those who are not believers, okay? If the, if the, if the fullness of the world belongs to the Lord, then everything anyone has becomes a gift from him and a stewardship, Okay, so even goodness from the Lord to those who, common grace to those who don't believe, uh, can come by way of material wealth, and that becomes a way that the Lord is able to then come back and say, look, these are the things I've given you, you never responded to me in the way that you should. But as we think about believers, as we think about those who are the Lord's, in general we have this understanding that the Lord is concerned about those who are poor. And so those of the Jewish population who had need were to be on the minds of the people. So you know, the Lord's given you the land, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother. So it's, it's, response, it's the responsibility of those who have something, particularly those who are God's people, to meet the needs of those who don't. And then, and what, what I want to do is just kind of draw a parallel here. So we see that in Deuteronomy 15, 7, but we see in 1 John 3, really the same language as it relates to those in the church. 1 John 3, 17, it says this, catch this, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So again, almost the exact same kind of wording. Now you're speaking in New Testament language and you're talking to uh, those who are redeemed because of the cross, but you still have the same heart of God and on his mind is those who have need. And so he says this, how can, how can the uh, love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth, we will know that, that this, that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him. So as we respond in this particular instance, as it parallels this Deuteronomy 15 passage, as we respond in generosity, we just affirm our hearts. That's not something that causes salvation. It's the fruit of salvation in responding generously. Now back to Deuteronomy 15.8. Look at the rest of the language here. So what do we do? Well, here's what you do. Um, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lead him, uh, lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart saying, you know, the seventh year, the year of remission is near and your eye is hostile to your poor brother and you give him nothing because they're thinking about uh, the year of Jubilee. They're thinking about the restoration year. They're thinking about, you know, okay, well, he's poor now, but he's going to get his land back. And so I'm not going to help him. Uh, the Lord says, don't think about that. Don't think about the things I've set up. If there's a need, I want you to meet it. 
And so uh, then he may cry out to the Lord against you. So you're, he's got a need. You're not helping. He cries out to the Lord, and it'll be a sin in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. And so there's this idea that there's this need in the land. The land's been given to the people. The Lord says, listen, when you have all this stuff that I gave you, and you're sitting in your house I gave you, you didn't build it, and you're cultivating a field you didn't plant, and you're picking grapes off vines you didn't plant, and all this stuff is, is great to you, and you see somebody who's, who's having a hard time, don't be thinking, okay, well, just a few years, they're going to get this restored, and they'll be fine. If you've got a way to meet it, go ahead and meet it. And not only that, not just do it, the Lord says, but when you do it, uh, I'm going to bless your work and all your undertakings. So I'm watching. It's in my heart, those who, have, who don't have much, it's in my heart that their needs be met, and it's, I'm counting on you to doing that, to do that. And so it's a way to respond. And so here's the question. Do you want to be blessed in all you do, everything in which you set your hand? Uh, the Lord says, just give, okay? Same language as we see in Acts 2.35 and Luke 6.38. We looked at that briefly last time, and where the Lord says, give, it'll be given to you, and it's more blessed to give than receive. We're going to look at that in depth in just a few minutes, because those are marvelous verses that talk about really the... the, uh, the the blessing that comes to those who take care of the needs of the church. Now, back to Deuteronomy 15.11. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. So, in other words, you're probably not going to eradicate bad financial decisions by other people. Um, there's going to be a continuing need in the land. There's going to be some time where you're going to need to help them. You're gonna, there's going to be people who just have a difficult time in life, and, they, and some struggles have happened to them for whatever reason as the Lord's brought them to your mind. Uh, brought them into their life, and they bring, and you, he brings this to your mind. The poor, he says, will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother and to your needy and your poor in your land. That's the will of God. So everybody wants to know what the will of God is, right? Well, that's a place where we can just understand it very clearly, don't we? If there's a need and we can meet it, we're supposed to meet it. And so that's very clear. So, and, uh, and we're going to see this over and over then in our passage this morning. Uh, and we're going to talk about this further, but the responsibility then is much greater than just crunching the numbers and covering up with 10%, isn't it? Now, we don't teach tithing here as, as we understand in the Old Testament. We'll talk about that more. But the, f the bottom line is, I, I don't think any way, there's any way that you can read those passages and just say, okay, I've already hit my threshold. I'm not responsible anymore, right? I mean, it's, it's more of an attitude, isn't it? What's the attitude? The attitude is, hey, what's the need? And then the action is, how can I meet it? See? And so these are, these are normal responses then as we understand that the Lord has a desire to take care of those who have need in the church, and then he's given people the ability to do that, and so that's our response. Now, there's another great illustration of God being concerned about the needy in Psalm 41.1. He says this, How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. That's pretty good, isn't it? Those who, those who consider those who aren't able to help themselves, and obviously what's implied there is that he's helping you're helping, she's helping, whatever it is. Those who can't help themselves, the Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. The Lord will protect him, keep him alive. He shall be called blessed upon the earth and do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. Verse 3, the Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed in his illness and restore him to health. So God's concerned about those who are generous. That's the whole point of the passage. Take care of those who are helpless and the Lord takes care of you. He keeps track of all of that. Not in a vindictive kind of way, but it's just the way his economy works. Okay? Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deeds. Here's one thing we can always count on uh, from the Lord, is he always what? He always repays, doesn't he? he? He never forgets a good deed that's done, and he takes care of that. See, every time you give to a need, God repays you. So just very straightforward. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31. He who, here's the other side, he who oppresses the poor 
taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors his maker. So here's the question. Do you really want to scoff at God? See, if you have an opportunity to meet need and you don't meet it or you, you really are, are being very uh, crit critical about the individual instead of just meeting the need, you think God's concerned then about that? Sure he is. Is he concerned about those who have need? Yes, he is. You think God's concerned about being generous and sacrificial in the way that you meet it? He sure is. So is it any wonder then that Paul tells Timothy then, and coming back into the New Testament, he says this, instruct those who are rich in this present world. Isn't that great? That's great language, isn't it? Rich in this present world, because there is a future world to come in which the last will be first and the first will be last and all of that, right? Just in the present world. So in this temporary world, if you happen to have something, okay, that's the idea. In this temporary world, if you happen to have something, or you may have more than enough, okay, and the Lord's been rich, uh, very good in his blessings to you, uh, or whatever. See, don't be conceited or fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. So don't be haughty about it like as, as if you did something on your own that made this happen. The Lord in his graciousness, because he owns everything, has given you more than enough, all right? So be grateful, don't be conceited, and uh, don't put your hope on that, okay? Don't look at your portfolio and think, I am super secure for the future. That's what the Lord doesn't like, okay? But on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Because when it comes right down to it, beloved, if it was all stripped away and all you had was uh, something over your head and food to eat and clothes to wear, would you be content with that? See, because that's a question scripture asks often. Are you content with all of that? We've stripped all the stuff away, all the air conditioning and all the, all the nice stuff and everything. And, and nobody really wants to do that, okay? I mean, it's all right. You, as we talked about before, you don't have anything that the Lord hasn't given you. But if it all got stripped away, would you be okay with that? See, if you were like 80% of the rest of the world and you lived on less than 2,000 bucks a year, would you be all right with that? And so if you can answer yes, if, if whatever it is you have, you're okay with it being burned up at the end, which is what's going to happen to it, then you're approaching it from the right attitude. But if you have something in the world, don't be conceited, don't be, put your, you know, your hope on those things. Instead, he says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share. And that kind of goes right along with God's concern for those who have need, right? Storing up from themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so they can take hold of that which is life indeed. So how do you lay up for the future? Again, the same question we asked last time. What's it look like? And really, this becomes the model for us to understand how to lay up for the future, how to lay up treasure in a world that's to come that never fades away, see? So here's the thing. If we say we're his and we are called by his name, you know, God's kind-hearted, God's gracious, God's open-handed, and so if we're not, then we taunt our maker. We say to our father, you know, uh, hey, um, this is mine, and I'm, I'm just going to hang on to it. See, God's concerned about the needs of the church. It's a command, then, as we see, to give. It's not a command to give a certain amount. We're going to see how that works out. But it's a command to give, to take care of those who have need. And the church in Jerusalem knew these principles and applied them. And we've seen that as we looked at Acts 2 and Acts 4. But in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it's an interesting, an interesting passage I want to read to you because I think it's, um, uh, it has a lot to do with this need in Jerusalem and what they were doing to meet the need, okay? And in verse 32, it says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Now, let's pause right there instead, in case you think I'm going Bernie Sanders' way. This is not government, okay? Communism, socialism, and government is a bankrupt system. So don't think that somehow we can, we can super-spiritualize our country and say, okay, this is how we should do it, because that's not how it works, in the unredeemed world. This is how the church met its own needs, okay? This is how they looked at the needs inside the church, because that's what we're talking about, isn't it? In general, our instruction is how to meet the needs of the church, 
Our specific passage here has to do with how the churches abroad were helping meet the needs of a church in Jerusalem. So it's believers ministering to believers, and this is what they were doing. So they had need in Jerusalem, obviously. Lots of people without work, big, big, fam uh, a big uh, uh, famine in the land. And so there's lots of stuff going on. People came and were redeemed. Church grew, but many of them didn't get jobs back. Many of them were uh, dismissed from their jobs because they were believers. So a big need. The church in Jerusalem's trying to meet it. Okay, so they're just saying, okay, I've got some property. I can sell it. We'll make this need. I've got some things I can give. I've got a little bit. You've got a need. We'll take care of it. So it's just kind of giving a snapshot of how they're meeting their own need. And verse 33 says, And with great power the apostles were given testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds to the, of the sale and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they'd be distributed to each one as any had need. And so, obviously, early on, a lot of need. It was being met internally. But after a while, what's going to happen? I mean, you have a church, and you have a few who still have jobs, and you have a whole bunch of people who don't. You have a few people who have property. You have a few people who have things. They're selling them. They're meeting some needs, and eventually that's going to that's start to run out. And so that's why Paul's like, okay, we can help with this. We're going to send some money in from these churches. We're going to say, hey, we love you. We're brothers with you. You know, we're showing fruit of salvation. All those things that we just talked about, this is a need. It's immediate need. We're going to meet it, and so it's going to be sent in. So they had a pretty big task in Jerusalem, and they were doing a pretty good job of, of meeting it. They set themselves to it. Now, catch this. Now, we're studying our passage, and that's going to reveal to us how the Lord was going to repay them. You understand? So when we see, when you open up your hand to those who have need, and you give uh, when you can meet needs, um, we see that happening in Jerusalem. We see the New Testament churches giving. And what we're going to study is how the Lord repaid them for doing that. Okay? Because what we don't see is how we, that he actually did that in Jerusalem. But we know for sure, as we just read the passages just a minute ago, if you open your hand to the needy, the Lord repays you. Right? So we know for sure that that happened. So as Paul took it about himself then in his third missionary journey to bring this matter of need to the other churches under his care, and later how the Lord took care of those that took care of the Jerusalem church, that's what we're going to see. And it's just a great picture, and it's a pattern for giving, which is general, and I think we can easily say universal and instructive. And it just shows, you know, the needed heart attitude of all of our giving, and that's the point. And that's why we're going to, you know, Paul just used general terms, but we can certainly see those as uh, very important principles, very important guidelines as we think about New Testament giving. Now, as we look at Paul's instruction to the Corinthian church, there's going to be several guidelines that are, we're going to discover, and we're going to do that right now. But um, and we can use those as we're prompted by the Holy Spirit. Here it is, to lay up treasure in heaven. So we're instructed to do that. How do you lay up treasure that doesn't fade away? Well, that's what we're going to see. see. But one of the most recognizable, I think, and, and very heartening and encouraging promises uh, in all of Scripture is found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's quite a promise, isn't it? And it's a foundation for confidence as it relates to giving. He's going to supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ. And how much is that? Well, just, let's just say that the account is not going to be overdrawn, okay? Uh, excessive, unbelievable ability to meet the needs of those who love the Lord as we cast our cares upon him and as we trust him for what we have, Okay? And we're going to examine some of the ways in which he does that. But one of the ways he did that for the church in Jerusalem was through believers in the New Testament churches. Okay, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. How did he do that to the Jerusalem church? Well, he did it through those who were in the church, who sold things and gave it, make sure the needs were met. And he's doing it through the New Testament churches because they're taking up collection and they're going to bring it. So he does it all kinds of ways, but that's certainly two ways we can see that it was actually going on. So we're going to look at a few ways that he does that. 
And uh, so now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. And then he begins to give them some guidelines. And he says this. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Now remember, Titus has already come there and started the collection, and then they got derailed because of all the trouble inside the church. But finally, he's getting back to answering this question. He's just saying, okay, just in general, here's the thing. All right, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Now, if you're taking notes, you can find this on the back of your bulletin, and we'll just call this guidelines for giving. And guideline giving number one is this, and it's really implied by the entire passage and everything we've looked at up till now, but I think you can see it. It's just very obvious. Giving is the way the church, church's needs are met. Understand that, beloved, okay? Giving, you and me, joining together and giving what we have to give is the way the church's needs are met. In other words, we give in order to meet the needs of the church. That's how it works, okay? It's a one-to-one. -one. We give, the church's needs are met, okay? So, to be clear, this example now is not just the local church meeting its own needs, okay? In its own location. So I want to be clear. This example, obviously, is having to do with the local church meeting the needs of another local church in another location. But, beloved, it goes without saying that the local church is meeting its own needs on, its, on a local level, okay? Because otherwise, there's no organization there and there's nobody there to do it, okay? So taking care of the needs in your own location is just implied, okay? But this is obviously, this example is taking care of a church in another location. Obviously, here in this context, the Corinthian church and the churches of Galatia and Macedonia are all coming together to meet the needs of another local body of believers in Jerusalem. But the guidelines only get more clear as we understand that. Without the diligent local support, there wouldn't be a strong foundation than to extend support to other churches that are far from us, okay? As we look at missions giving and all that kind of thing. Understand, beloved, listen, without a, a strong base, you, you don't continue to have strong support for those who are far from you, okay? That's just kind of how it goes. So it's just implied, listen, the needs are met at the local level, and then they are, they are funneled through and sent out, and we have a strong base to, to stand up. And this isn't saying the church shouldn't be meeting the needs and I want to make sure this is clear. It isn't saying that the church shouldn't be meeting the needs of people outside the church. We should, as we have opportunity, okay? And, and you know, as we do ministry outside our church, we, we went, uh, the church in New York that I led, we went to Gulfport, Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina. And we called that our Galatians 610 ministry. And so there is an opportunity, if we can, to meet those needs of people who are outside the church. And I think, uh, as Paul told the Galatians, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people all people as we have opportunity, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Why? Because the Lord is concerned about those who have need in the church. He's concerned about those outside the church too, but the main concern that he has is what? Those who are inside the church, the church's needs are met, we're meeting the needs of, of uh, those far from us and all that kind of stuff. So uh, the admonition from Paul is that if there's opportunity, then we're to help meet the needs of those who are not believers. But the main reason for the collection here is to, to supply for those needs of the church, and there's a lot more to say, and we'll have to say it at a later time, we just kind of come back and we'll pull all these and extrapolate them out and, and have some application how you kind of evaluate what you bring in and, and where it comes from and, and what our priorities are as it comes to using our income. And all that is going to be in the future, okay? And so uh, let's look for our next guideline, though, as Paul shares with the church. So the first one is this. Giving is the way the church's needs are met. That's how it works, okay? It comes from those who are believers. It meets the needs of the church. Now let's look at that next guideline. Look at verse 2. On the first day of the week... Okay, so first day of the week, uh, that was the day Christ was raised from the dead. Okay, we understand that's the day uh, that continued to be the day the believers in the New Testament met to worship. So they used to worship on Saturday as uh, 
as Jews, but when the Christ was raised on Sunday, they began to worship on Sunday, and we see that fellowship going on there, and giving in Acts 20, verse 7, gives us a great uh, foundation to stand on there. Uh, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul is there, of course, he's in Troas, and that's when he gave a lengthy message, and somebody fell out of the window, and all that kind of stuff, and you understand that. But the bottom line is that it's the first day of the week, Paul's talking to them, he intends to leave on the next day, they break bread together, and, and all that kind of stuff. So, the meeting on that, uh, that Sunday, John in the church of, on the island of Patmos, he receives his first vision uh, that we have recorded in Revelation 1. It says, on the Lord's Day, verse 10. And so we understand the Lord's Day is Sunday. And, uh, of course, we'll come back uh, to that Acts passage in just a minute and comment a little further when we get there. But you remember at the end of chapter 19, you know, Paul and, and the disciples have a considerable hullabaloo because Demetrius the silversmith is giving them a hard time. And, and they're in Ephesus and everybody's in an uproar. They all come to the city center and, and they're going to string everybody up and beat everybody up and all that kind of stuff. And and uh, Paul wants to go in there and calm everybody down. But the disciples say, no, that would be bad. That's like throwing gas on the fire. You just come over here and get out of sight. And we'll just, you know, we'll let, uh, we'll let the city manager calm everything down. You know, Acts 19, if you read this. And so, uh, so all this is going on. People are burning their magic books. They're coming to faith. They're burning their magic books. They're, you know, chopping up their, uh, their idols. And, you know, all the, all the guys who make idols, they're all losing business. They're all ticked off because Paul's there and they're preaching. And everything's going, uh, you know, businessmen who are unredeemed, they think everybody, the economy is just going in a downward, uh, you know, at a downward angle, it's going to explode at the end. Okay, so this is all going on in Acts 19. And, uh, you know, so uh, they're making a big, uh, a big uproar in the city center. And, and then the, the city manager comes up and says, listen, this is ridiculous. You guys got to disband, you know. Rome's going to get involved. If you don't cut it out, we're, we're assembling here. It's a big riot. That gets everybody's attention, and the ruckus dies down, and then we get this uh, list from Paul. And remember last time, we talked about this, and we saw this in our passage in 1 Corinthians 16, that some representatives from the church were going to come uh, with this gift that's being taken up from all the churches, okay? And so Paul is there with some of these guys. And so I just want to read this to you because I think this is great, a great passage. So you can kind of see, remember how Paul said, you know, it's important that there's a face with the check. Not just, um, you know, you send it and you're, you're done with it, but like you're involved with the giving and, you, and you know, you're, you're telling people you love them and all that kind of stuff. In Acts 20, we see this. So the uproar ceased. Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave from them, he left to go to Macedonia. Now, obviously, he's going to Macedonia to do what? He's going to encourage them, and he's going to take up a, a collection. Okay, so he's going around, and he's doing this, and we're going to see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the collection that he took up from them. So we're just seeing history unfold here as, as we read through the book of Acts and we see what's going on. He's going to Macedonia, verse 2. When he had gone through these districts and given them much exhortation, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, uh, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Verse 4. And he was accompanied by, now catch this, Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and Aristarchus and Secundus and, of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for him at Troas. So there you have it. Okay, so here's the people. Here, here's the people coming from the churches who are giving, and they're all in this big group, and they're headed to Jerusalem. See, and I just thought that was cool just to take that snapshot when Paul says, hey, if somebody wants to go along from the church at Corinth, that'd be great, and I'll go along with them. And there's a list of folks who are actually doing that. So the church has responded, as we saw in Ro uh, Romans last time. The church was... Uh, was uh, requested to give. Paul in Romans 15 shows us that they all did. They responded well. There was a big collection, and all these guys are going, and they're going to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to present this offering to the church and tell them that they love them. And so just a great little snapshot of actually what went on. So Paul's exhortation came true, and the, the churches responded as they should, and we can see this as uh, we go through. So there's that list. It's pretty cool. All the places where the congregations were of one mind, and were taking care of the local church, 
and were also able to take care of the church far from them and send a representative who obviously took off work and, and, and went on traveling and it was important enough to do it. So on the road with Paul uh, to make sure fellowship and love were communicated then uh, with the meeting of this immediate need. Now back to our passage. So giving guideline number one, giving is the way the church needs, needs are met. And then giving guideline number two, we saw this then at the end, and I think we can say giving normally occurs as part of worship. So on the first day of the week, they're there together, and what are they doing? They're worshiping the Lord, they're reading the scripture, they're singing songs, uh, they're breaking bread together, and what's going to happen? They're going to take a collection. So typically, uh, normally occurs as part of worship. We do that here. In fact, I asked Alex to say this early on in our ministry together. Um, part of our worship together is musical singing. It's, it's uh, lifting up musical worship to the Lord. Part of our worship is praying. Okay, and we seek the Lord and we recognize he's the source of everything and, and he is the one who provides all that we need and we, we submit ourselves to him, we get our hearts right with him and that's part of it, right? And then part of worship is what? Is giving, giving of what the Lord has given you. You respond in the correct way in generosity and, and sacrificiality and we, we give that way and we worship that way, see? And then uh, the teaching of the word was part of what the church did. So there's, there's a historical connection for us, see? And maybe not exactly like the church did it in, in the first century, but th I think there's a familiarity there that you can see why we do what we do. So giving is the way the church's needs are met. That's the way it works. Giving through the church, church's needs are met that way. Giving normally occurs as part of worship. And then this part, and I can see, you'll probably see why. We're going to pause on this for a minute. And it's just, it's just in, you know, in passing, he says this. Each one of you, it's the adjective hekastos, and it's in the superlative. So in other words, it's each and every one of you. That's the emphasis. So given guideline number three, everybody's supposed to participate. You're like, oh boy, here it comes. I think that's really the point. And I, th and I think uh, he, he could have said anything he wanted to say. I was just kind of thinking some of the stuff he could have put out there. He could have said this. He could have said, everybody with extra this month, please do it. I mean, he could have said that, right? If you have extra, make sure you throw it in. He could have said, if you're wealthy, redistribute it, right? I mean, he could have said it. I mean, Paul could have given any instruction he wanted. He was carried along by the Holy Spirit. He could have said that, right? He could have said, you know, he could have said, only if you think you can afford it, come and drop off a check. He could have said that. Just take all the pressure off. What did he say? Each and every one of you. So he's writing to the church, and everybody reads it, and they understand that they're included, right? And, of course, the statement has so much more we're going to add so that we can give it some perspective and facilitate that as application. But I think the statement is, is straightforward, isn't it? I mean, it's just obvious. Everyone's supposed to participate. Now, of course, the context here has to do with meeting the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. But the guideline is universal. Everyone participates. Now, I've got a lot of statistics about trends in giving in the church over the years. And, and uh, I've pulled stats from all over the place. And, but this time, I just read an article in Revelant, uh, Relevant Magazine. Now, I'm not... I'm not advocating Relevant Magazine. I'm just saying it was an article that I read, and I went through it, and I just thought, you know, that's interesting. It, it was well-documented, so I just thought, I'll, I'll just pass it along to you. And although these, these things vary between churches, the average based on current data, I think, still indicates that um, givers only make up, make up between 10 and 25% of a normal congregation. Now, in general, over the years, I've always said 10% of the people give 90% of the giving. That's, ten, that's, that's Tennessee in the church. 10% give 90%. And 10% of the people do 90% of the work. That's just generally how it is. And 90% of the people give 10% of the giving. And 90% of the people do 10% of the work. That's generally how it works in the church. So these statistics over 2016, uh, this generally says that 
giving only, uh, givers in a church only make up between 10 and 25% of the normal congregation. And the average giver gives about 2.5% of their yearly salary. Now, we don't teach tithing, okay, and, and uh, in the sense that it's mentioned in the Old Testament because we don't see that pattern in the New Testament, and we're going to go into that more depth at another time. But, but the point of the article was to ask the question, then based on current giving trends in the church, what would happen if all believers were to increase their giving to 10% of their, of their yearly income. So that was the point of the article, and so here's the response. Now, I want you to just listen to this with an open heart, okay? Now, I'm not advocating 10%, but obviously, it's going to come out to numbers, okay? And I'm not saying that tithe is what we do, because I don't think that's what the word means, and we're going to look at that as well. But I'll just say this, okay? If, if the average believer gave more than 2.5%, of course, and obviously everyone participated, according to the article, based on current data, there would be an additional, catch this, $165 billion a year for the church to use and distribute. $165 billion, okay? That's for U.S. churches. And the global impact in the magazine is phenomenal. Okay, here's just a few things that the church could do with that kind of money. Now, this is not saying you're given 50% of your income, okay? This is just saying you're pulling it up from 2.5 or 0 to 10%. Okay? One billion dollars of that could fully, catch this, beloved, okay? This is just mind-blowing. One billion of that could fully fund all missions work to unreached overseas people three times over. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? Three times over, beloved. It would fund overseas unreached people groups three times over. And now, the rest of these I put, in parentheses, in the hands of the evangelical church, okay? $25 billion could relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable disease in five years in the hands of the church, okay? Not in the hands of government that's wasting it everywhere. I'm talking about people who have people on the ground who are believers, and that money is coming straight in and being used for those things. $25 billion. $12 billion could eliminate illiteracy in five years. $12 billion. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically at places where the world... Uh, One billion people live with le- on less than a dollar a day, okay? And that would still leave, beloved, 100 to 110 billion left over for additional ministry expansion. That's just if the believers currently giving in the church went from 2.5 or nothing up to about 10% of their income. That's what would come in, see? That's mind-blowing. But that should, that should wash out, right? If we understand that 10% of the people give 90% of the giving, that's not surprising, is it? That it'd be that much of a change, a flip over. So here's the thing. And those are amazing numbers and staggering, okay? So if everyone did what everyone is supposed to do, so every one of you, in other words, as Paul says, that general principle, like we see in that second portion of verse 2, there'd be some significant differences in the end result, were there not? And there's, you know, and here's the thing. There's a lot of reasons why people don't give, okay? And reasons they give for not giving. And we're going to deal with some of those later. But I think we understand the Lord in his word well enough to understand and catch this and take this in the, in the manner that I intended, okay? And I told you what I think about Berean already, okay? I'm not, I don't think Berean's a stingy church. I don't. I think they're a very giving church. And many of you, very, very giving. You meet needs all the time. And, and I know there's tons of needs being met that I don't even know about, and I'm grateful for that, okay? But what I'm saying is this, okay? And, and take it in the, in the heart manner, okay? There's lots of reasons why people give for not giving, all right? But I think we can understand the Lord and his word well enough to understand that there aren't really any reasons that will be able to give us a sufficient reason before the Lord 
to get us off the hook, to disobey his clear commands about meeting the needs that are around us, okay? Let's just be real. There's money that you take in, and it doesn't belong to you at all, okay? And me too. There's money you take in. It doesn't belong to you at all. The Lord gave it to you so you can meet needs. And many times we just consume it on ourselves. And we're going to see this in Proverbs over and over again. Spending more than we make. And I've given you statistics before. I'll give you some more again. The average American spends $1.17 for every dollar they bring in. And so what's that tell you, beloved? We're consuming every single thing that comes in and borrowing for the future that the Lord hasn't even given to us yet. See? So these are, these are just general principles we're going to look at. But I think as we look at... You know, just these simple statements from Paul, each one of you, listen, on the first day of the week, set it aside. I mean, I don't think we can give any, any reason it's going to give us off the hook. We're just consuming everything on ourselves. See? There's nothing wrong with having things. We looked at this before. There's no sin in, in being wealthy, okay? If you have it, the Lord's given it to you. The problem is, is that we're consuming it on ourselves. We're being conceited. We're, we're absent good deeds. We're absent all those kind of things. See, that's the problem. And, you know, my, my intention is not to make you feel badly. And, that, and, and I told you this before, and hopefully you don't. I just point out a couple of things to help you understand, really, this, this whole dichotomy that's going on here between what we understand the Word of God saying, perhaps, and maybe what we're doing uh, with what we have, see? But there's a couple of verses. We're going to end with these because we're about out of time. And you're like, Phew, I need to get out of here. So, you know, Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Here's one, okay? There's just two verses, I think, if you understood these, these could really help you feel better about just really getting involved in, in doing what you need to do. Here's, here's the first one, okay? Jesus is speaking on the Beatitudes. This is, a, this is a marvelous passage, okay? Now, this is not us saying, Lord, if, you, if I give to you, I want you to give me this back to me, okay? This is not us saying that at all, okay? Give and it will be given to you. They'll pour into your lap good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Now, it is talking about what it's talking about, okay? It's talking about how you use financial benefit, okay? We're not, we're not, you know, taking it and kind of twisting it around and making it mean something it doesn't mean. It's just straightforward. The whole context of the passage has to do with what you've been given. And here's what the Lord says. Give it, it'll be given to you. They'll pour into your lap good measure, press down, shaken together, running over, for by your standard of measure it'll be measured to you in return. Let's break that down a little bit, okay? In proportion to what you give, God will give back to you. And not only that, but he'll use the same measuring implement that you use. Okay, so if you're generous, if you're sacrificial, if, you know, if you're faithful, the Lord's that way in response to you. Okay, now you're not, you're not changing your relationship with him as it results in salvation. You're not putting yourself in a greater position of his favor. I'm not talking about any of that. Okay, you're redeemed, clothed with righteousness, and secure forever. Okay, he's able to save forever those who are his. Listen, we're not talking about any of that. We're just talking about life. What are you doing with your life? Okay, what are you doing with what you've been given? So, in the proportion that you give, God gives back to you. Not only that, he uses the same measuring implement that you use, but he presses it down, packs it tightly, and causes it to overflow. See? So, interesting, if you give a lot, you receive a lot more back. See, that's how it works. See, you give, and the Lord presses it down. He's got all kinds of ways to give it to you. He can give it to you in good health. He can give it to you in trouble-free car maintenance. He can give it to you in, you know, a, a benefit in tax time. He can, he can do anything he wants. You don't have to go to the dentist. He, you know, <laughs> You know, there's all kinds of stuff, okay? I'm not just talking about, you know, hey, you're going to go to the mailbox and pull out this huge check from the Lord, okay? I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about he's able to do it, and he packs it down. He uses the same measure, except he packs it down. Not like your cereal box, okay? 
you know, where you look in there and it's already half full because it's shipped, and then you shake it some more and it's like a third full. Not like that, okay? And the Lord keeps pouring it in, then he packs it, and he pours it in, and he packs it, and then that's how he gives it. Now, I'm not making that up, okay? That's what it says. So, when you give, Jesus says that God will fill your lap to overflowing. So, being generous and giving results in greater generosity to you from God. And that's, that's a very direct path of blessing from the Lord. So, if you're not giving, or if you're one of those that, you know, is barely giving, you know, just every now and then you're tipping God or whatever, understand something, you're missing out. Okay? That's a very direct path of blessing from the Lord. Very similar to the passage we read last week from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25, one of my favorites. There's one who scatters, yet increases more. I love that. It's an, agrarian, it's an agrarian illustration, but it has to do with giving what you have. Okay, there's one who scatters and yet increases more. And there is one who withholds what is right, more than what's right, and it leads to poverty. There's somebody who just hoards and he thinks, okay, I'll be better off, and he's not. And there's somebody who's super generous, and they're always doing okay. See, that's the Lord's economy. That's how he works. If he's involved in your economy, in your home economy, everything changes. That, per, that whole dynamic changes, Okay. What you would understand, you accountants out there, as how that kind of should work one-to-one, it doesn't work that way when the Lord's involved with it, okay? Because we kind of look at it like a pie, okay? We're kind of cutting the pie in different sections, and we're going to, one's going to here, and one's going here, and this is what am I giving, and when it's gone, it's gone. That's not how it works with the Lord, okay? I kind of like to look at it as a silo from the Lord, okay? It's a silo, and then you shovel out some, and you put it here, and you shovel out some, and he put it there, and if we understand the Lord right, he's still pouring it back in at the top. You don't even know where that's coming from, okay? That's a better illustration, I think, than the typical, you know, hey, it's just a pie and there's only, you know, whatever. So, beloved, if Luke 6.38 was the only passage in the Bible that helped us understand giving, and it's certainly not because we've looked at, what, five or six other ones that are very similar to that. If it was the only passage by itself, it should make a significant impact in the way we look at what we do with what we have. You give, he gives more back. That's how it works, Okay. So would you like to receive something pressed down, shaken together, running over, poured into your lap? Well, then you have to give in order for that to happen, okay? See? And that should be enough to change the way giving is done in the church, if that was it. But it isn't the only thing that's said, not by a long shot. We're going to look at one more for now because we're out of time. And here it is. Um, in the light of that Luke passage, this one's going to make perfect sense, okay? In the light of the Luke passage. So we looked at this last time just briefly. Acts 20, verse 35. So Paul speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus. Here's what he says. Um, in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. So what's, what's on Paul's heart? Taking care of the needs inside the church. How do you do that? Well, the church meets its own needs. That's how it happens. And then he says, help the weak and remember the words of Jesus himself. What did Jesus say? Now, we have no place in the Gospels where this is recorded. And what's interesting is this is one of the few places outside the Gospels where the words of Jesus are actually quoted. I'll give you a few more in just a second. But this one is interesting. So of all the places that Jesus' words are quoted, almost all the Gospels, except for these three other ones, 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, where Paul quotes Jesus on divorce. So he just says, this is what Jesus said, and then he gives it out, okay? And we've looked at that. And then 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, Paul quotes Jesus at the Passover meal. He says, and this is what happened, and Jesus said this, and Paul quotes it, okay? And then 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul quotes Jesus' words to him concerning health problems. My grace is sufficient for you. So he says, Jesus said this to me, and I understood that he wasn't going to heal me, and it was going to be difficult for me, and my grace is going to make it up. So those three places, plus this place, are the only places that I could find, and if you find more, please feel free to correct me. But those are the, those are the four that I saw that have anything to do with Jesus' words that aren't recorded for us in the Gospels. So, this one from Acts is of particular importance to our point, isn't it? And it's quite an amazing statement if you think about it. 
because it sounds so opposite of what is supposed to be true, okay? I mean, right? I mean, what you give away brings you greater blessing than what you receive. Now, we learn early on at our birthday parties when we're kids that what we get is pretty important, right? I mean, when you're a kid and you've got children, you know, you, we love celebrating birthdays with our boys. And we want to make sure that if, as we could afford inside our budget, to give them things that they, they had asked for. I mean, it, it's a joy to give away gifts, right? And we're men and, and women, and we understand how to give good gifts. The father knows how to give good gifts, and we learn from him, okay? So if the father, if we learn from the father, the father knows what to do. And here's the deal. Jesus says, listen, you know, it's more blessed to give than to receive. To have the most blessing then you have to give, right? Everyone knows it's great to receive, and we learn that early. But Jesus says it's even better than that to, to give because of the great expectations of the understanding of these two verses and what they should generate in your own heart, beloved. I mean, as you think about just those two, okay, that should change the way giving's done in the church. If you want to be blessed in all you do, everything on which you set your hand, then you have to give. You give, the Lord gives back more. You give, and you're more blessed than when you're getting something. And that's a pretty big blessing. But you're more blessed than that, see? And those are just two of many, many promises from the Lord. And we'll mix them in as we go through some of these principles on giving. And I know we're kind of stretching out four verses really long. I promise I won't be as long as I'm going to be when we get to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Because there's so many more things that can help us understand. But I'm going to give you enough so there's a good background. I don't want you to think, okay, well, I've got $28 in my bank account. And i got some bills i got to pay, but I'm going to just give the $28. I don't want you to think that, Okay. Because there's some guidelines from the Word of God that have to do with paying what you owe, and that's part of your testimony and all those things. So don't think I'm saying anything that I haven't actually said to you. I'm just talking about general attitude towards what the Lord has given and how these passages here in 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4 are just very clear. Hey, on the first day of the week, as part of your worship, you come together, you meet the needs of the church, and everybody's supposed to do it. Okay? So just start there, if you would, beloved. And once again, I think that you're already doing that. Just start there, though, and begin to process that whole thing as it works inside uh, your own financial um, calculations. But those are the realities. I think it, uh, you know, it should make us all the more desirous to be sacrificial and generous. Uh, but apparently, <laughs> 75 to 90 percent of believers don't believe that promise, okay? I mean, if, if we just, just do the math, I mean, obviously, the promises are very clear. They've been in the Word since it was written. But the bottom line is, 75 to 90 percent of believers inside the evangelical church don't believe those things. And it really becomes then and this is just kind of the challenge as we close up. It really becomes a matter of faith, okay? You don't, you don't believe God's promises in this area, obviously. You can't really say anything else, right? Or you'd give. I mean, it's pretty sad, but it's an obvious conclusion. It really can't be anything else. And worse than what happens is than, than not believing the promises and ignoring the guidelines set up by the Lord, believers, instead of giving, hoard or become selfish or, or irresponsible or self-indulgent or whatever, see, because we don't believe the Word of God. And we're, if we were obedient and we truly believed the promises, then there would be no reason not to act. Let's just be clear, okay? That's the only way it can be. You know, if we were obedient to the, each one of you directions given to us, we'd do it. If we, were, if we really believe that it's more blessed in giving than receiving, then we would do it. If we really believe that when we give, God gives back more, we would give, right? I mean, it's just obvious. Now, there's a principle we're going to see in just a second, and it's going to help us as we close out really dealing with these things. And I just want you to think through this, okay? Um, you know, dealing spiritually, beloved, with material things has to do with how, and I think you can see this, how you feel about what you have, not how much you have. It's how you feel about it. I mean, how you look at it. Is it yours to do with what you want? Or do you understand that it's the Lord's, he's given it to you in his 
graciousness and generosity and that there's some stuff that you need to be concerned about, see? And if it's each one of you, that's going to pull you in, okay? So it has to do with what you feel, how you feel about what you have, not how much you have, see? And we're going to see that as a principle as we get to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It has nothing to do with how much it is. It has everything to do with what the heart attitude is as you look at what you have and you align your life in such a way that you can meet immediate need and start meeting the needs of the church, see? And there's a lot of passages we'll examine, and we're out of time, going to help us shape those feelings for us um, because it's, it's how you feel, and, and there's ways to shape those feelings as we look at what the Word of God says, see? And then this just takes you through. I'm just going to kind of um, wrap this up, even though this is not my wrap-up in my notes. Here's the deal. Okay, so verse 2 says this. On the first day of every week, each one of you, now we covered that, is to put aside and save as he may prosper. And it, you can see that that is just packed full of guidelines for us, isn't it? It has to do with intentionality, has to do with planning, has to do with, you know, basis for giving on how the Lord prospers you. All things belong to him, see, so he gives them out of his sovereignty, and, and that becomes the measuring rod for our generosity. What you have, how you prosper, becomes the measuring rod for what you have available to you to, to give out, you see. And so these are just packed full of really great guidelines for how we to manage what we have. And we're going to look at this next time as the Lord permits, all right? So let's, um, let's bow in prayer, and we'll be dismissed, all right? Lord, we thank you today for a blessing of being in your word. We thank you for just the straightforward blessings you've given us in the two passages we saw here at the end, Lord, that are just so clear with uh, promised supply and take care of our need and all those things as we do what you say with what we have. You started with your people in Israel. You told them what to do and to be on the lookout for the needs that need to be met. And then you told them that, you know, everything they lay their hand on, that you'll bless as they are uh, factoring you and your promises and your guidelines into how they manage what they have. And so, Lord, we just thank you for for that. Starting early, this is not new stuff. Paul's just reiterating things that have been part of uh, this different way of managing finances than the world would show us to be. And so, Lord, I just pray that you will work with your Holy Spirit, that you'll uh, allow the things that I have said that didn't align with your word to be dismissed outright in the minds of these uh, beloved that they'll understand what your word says, its clarity, and what exactly that you mean by uh, what you say, what you mean by what you say, and then how that applies to them. And I pray that you'll begin to give them your wisdom by your Holy Spirit and how to do that and how to act on what um, you've said. And Lord, for all those who sit here and they are very faithful, they fall into that uh, 10 to 25% who are very faithful and give and are part of meeting the needs of the church and not consuming everything on themselves and all that kind of stuff. And you, I know, you have richly blessed them. You've taken care of all their needs. You've given them many of their wants. Uh, as you've done with us. And I'm so grateful for that. Just, you know, there's many who sit here who do this. This is not new and not news for them. Uh, they've found out your goodness already. And so, Lord, just help us all, though, to respond in such a way that you would have us respond. And be positive, really, not, not feeling bad, but knowing that you, you can be factored into the equation at any point along the way. It could be all the way up till now you haven't been factored, but you can begin to be factored in as we start to evaluate what we have in light of what your word says about it. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.